Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Well, welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, together with her unborn son. We just learned that she has a boy in the hopper. Um, <laughs> I hate that expression. She's got a beautiful baby boy. She yes. has a beautiful baby boy. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> or wait, you in our chat room. So, Ravinder, tell us all about your chat room. Oh, we have a lovely chat room, a great group of people. And with a show like today, I think we're going to get into some really interesting questions as well because... Uh, as I said, there's a there's a smart group in the in the chat room, and they're always adding something you know that I hadn't thought about. So do come join us and contribute to the conversation. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Great chat room and great chat hostesses, both Ravinder and Andrea. And now, is Andrea gonna? Is she, if, if they given him a name, do we have a name yet? Do no, you know? I think that's too early. Too, you know, well, okay, but I mean, you got to be thinking of a name. I don't want to, you know. Anyway, and the beautiful baby boy await you in our chat room. <laughs> All right, before we go on, 25 years ago, Ravinder and I were married. Today marks our silver anniversary, and I cannot let this opportunity go by without expressing to her just how wonderful the past 25 years have been, and how much I look forward to the next 25. So, happy anniversary, sweet. Happy anniversary to you too, gorgeous. I'm looking forward to the next 25. It's been fabulous. It's just been just a wonderful journey all the way through. So thank you. Yeah. If you're through beating me, it'll be a great thing. Oh, you like the beating. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the best bit for you. All right. In this week's spotlight, I wish to focus our attention on memory. I remember every beating. One of the things I most enjoyed during those days when I practiced criminalistics was forensic hypnosis sessions. It never ceased to amaze me how, in an altered state of consciousness, the mind could retrieve information otherwise unavailable. Indeed, in my book, Self-Hypnosis and Subliminal Technology, I shared a few stories about just how much detail could actually be recovered. For instance, under hypnosis, a convicted murderer was able to access information from months prior that occurred while he was under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And the detail was so complete that we were easily able to verify it and thus overturn his conviction. I have long argued that the non-conscious mind stores everything we experience, and it does so without discrimination, simply writing the memory, including any emotion attached to it, in our biocomputing non-conscious. 
Later, when we call upon ourselves for some action, this non-conscious information raises its head and sometimes sabotages our conscious efforts due to some subconscious defense strategy. Further, this mechanism is automatic and hidden well enough that typically we have no awareness of its action. We just find ourselves doing or not doing something that fails to serve our conscious interest. Well, this past week, scientists retrieved lost memories using optogenetics. Now, I've spoken about this technique in the past, including how this technology can take memories and hide them, as in the incidence of trauma treatment. In the latest reported research appearing in the Journal of Science, researchers at MIT made this claim. Amnesia is a problem of retrieval impairment. Quoting from Science Daily, studies carried out by Susuma Tunagwa, professor in MIT's Department of Biology and director of Rican MIT Center, and his group demonstrated that memories are stored not in synapses, strengthened by protein synthesis in individual engram cells, but in a circuit or pathway of multiple groups of engram cells and the connections between them. In Tanago's words, quote, We are proposing a new concept in which there is an engram cell ensemble, pathway, or circuit for each memory. This circuit encompasses multiple brain areas and the engram cell ensemble in these areas are connected specifically for a particular memory. Close quote. Carl Prebram suggested many years ago that memories were stored holographically across the brain, or again, across multiple brain areas. My own research has demonstrated this to be more probable than not, so the next time you think you have lost a memory, think again. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I lose all my memories. <laughs> I think that's called getting older. Actually, it's called getting older and getting busy, having too much to do, taking on too much. But, but again, that's a, that's a retrieval uh, I know. problem. I'm actually, and there are ways to actually increase your retrieval system, you know, to, to reconnect these. You know, one of the things that we do on the show every week is we get music from our guests. And, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon, but you can have seriously cognitive-impaired individuals who, for all intent and purposes, don't even know who they are, and play them a piece of music, and, you know, suddenly they're alive again. They, they're, they're dancing to the music, and they're remembering, and they're, 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 they are fully cognitively there and present, and and they can remain that way for some period of time before again it just slowly dissipates. It's a retrieval issue. So, you know, I don't think that we should be looking at memory from a standpoint of the stagnant sense that we have in the past. I would totally agree, agree with you. There, there is actually the common idea that you lose your memory as you get older, and that's actually a bad way to think. So I will smack myself for that one later on, because there are can lots of things <laughs> you'd enjoy it too much. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there are lots of things that you can do. You know, first of all, you have to change the belief that memory is going to go, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, there are things like reducing stress and uh, practicing, practicing. So, I mean, I've certainly taken on more of those things. I'm doing some of the great courses material as well, just things to keep my brain sharp. It's about time. 
<laughs> okay, every week I read some of your letters is our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week, the main studio mixer blew a bus, and we were forced to cancel the show. So during our last live show, our guest was Thomas Jacobson, and we discussed channeling and his experience with Mr. Peebles. Shannon wrote, I found your show with Thomas Jacobson to be the most to be of most interest when it came to how he felt about channeling the responsibility involved in being a medium. I'll bet he was a good one, but it troubled me when he spoke about the times he was wrong. You know, Shannon, I once was speaking at a Hay House event when a young woman from the audience asked me about a psychic she had just seen at the conference and what she had been told. Essentially, the information encouraged her to make some really dramatic changes in her life that troubled me, so I told her not to make any of them on the basis of the reading alone, for I've seen so many people really mess their lives up because some so-called psychic shared invalid information with them. Jerry wrote, I don't trust mediums. Marty wrote, I enjoyed your show with Thomas. He seemed like a really honest, caring person who sometimes was overwhelmed by the information he received. Moving on, a Facebook fan wrote this. Reading Eldon Taylor's book, Choices and Illusions, this morning, I highlighted a passage that really shifted my attitude about observing my recent story in Nicaragua and the concept of really living into ourselves. The more I accept all of what is transcending on this journey, the more I feel gratitude for all that I have seen because of it. But first, I handed my phone to the ocean. Bye-bye from frown emoticon. I was forced to disconnect. Then a series of power outages inspired me to meditate and read more. Disconnect, cat. Slow down some more. And still my eyes swelling might be saying, Cat, stop looking outside. It's all inside. I bet your story is just as telling, if you really look. Here's the quote from Eldon's book. When we ignore or dismiss the unexplained in our lives, we close the book on our story. How on earth are we ever to know ourselves if we won't even pay attention to our own story? Living into ourselves insists that we accept our experiences as our story and listen to that story, for it is the most important story of our life. Look closely at your own life. What unexplainable events have happened to you? Although in the beginning you may think that there have not been any such situations, as you open yourself up to them, you will find more and more. Continuing the quote, I believe that by paying attention to the miracles in your life that you can find personal answers to the questions. Why am I here and what am I supposed to be doing? When you are in the flow, your life will flower with a sense of satisfaction. Even when things are hard, you rest well knowing that you are being true to yourself and doing what is right for you. Close quote. And again, those words from my book, Choices and Illusions. Now, Ravinder, living into yourself is something you uh, you had a problem with when I, you know. I've been, yeah, I've been uh, talking to you about that one just recently when your book, What Does That Mean, came out. You know, What Does That Mean is full of your own stories and there are some big fantastic experiences you know um and at the time you know they're really interesting stories but it was like but you're special i'm not that stuff doesn't happen to me kind kind of attitude and then you start and then you started talking about it you know you did some presentations particularly at some of the hay house events 
and you were talking there about living into yourself and I still didn't quite get it but what I have realized is as I've assimilated that information as I've grown up a little bit more and I'm watching my own life it is most definitely unfolding the number of things that um I'm finding answers to today were questions that I asked when I was a child or things that were important to me or things that just came to me things that I didn't understand but I have been working towards it's all it's all coming together so there there definitely is a pattern to your life and when you find it it's really cool and you won't find it if you're not ready to do some self-examination. It takes a lot of self-examination, and some of that can be painful, but it's all worth it. It's fun. I love, you know, growing up. I, that, what an interesting metaphor. Have you gotten <laughs> taller? Okay. May wrote, my name is May, and I live in Australia. I just wanted to express my gratitude for your I Believe book and for your efforts to spread this information that will help so many people. At the beginning of 2014, I picked up your I Believe book from the library, and I was very encouraged by it, and that meant so much to me. I'm now reading it again for a third time. Reading your books has given me the hope I needed to make a drastic change in my thoughts because you made me believe it was possible, and it is, so thank you very much. I think it is wonderful that you're sharing your knowledge with the world. It will be a light for many. Well, thank you, May. Kathy wrote, Just want to tell you how much I enjoy your stories and your newsletters. They always give me something to think about. Remember, if you don't already subscribe to our e-newsletter, it's free, so do it today. Just go to eldentaylor.com and don't miss another one. Ravinder is writing some great ones right now. Okay, and Yvonne wrote, I am writing to express my appreciation and thank you for the work you do. I was introduced to Intertox Subliminal Technology by Mother's Hospice Nurse. Upon my mother's passing, she gave a CD to help me in my grieving process. I must say that I felt my anguish lessen and began feeling more at peace. Later, she shared the Intertox website and suggested I purchase a self-hypnosis and subliminal technology book. It was then I was hooked. I have ordered a number of CDs since then, some of which have suggested been suggested by Ravinder. My eyes were opened to a whole new understanding of just how we are being influenced while being totally unaware and what we can do about it. I know I need to be consciously aware of the things I expose myself to and what I need to do to replace my old thought patterns. I have faithfully been using the Intertalk CDs. This leads me to tell you of my personal experience in using your CDs. Please understand I am a daughter, wife, and mother, not a public speaker. However, because of being my mother's caregiver who was diagnosed with dementia, I was asked to speak at the White House Committee on Aging Alzheimer's last month. On my way to Washington, D.C., I listened to the CD of Strategic Planning, which Ravinder had recommended, along with a self-confidence CD. I continued to listen to them on and off the following day. On Tuesday, when I gave my speech, I felt calm and relaxed. I successfully delivered my speech with ease and confidence. I believe I have you to thank for that. I especially want to thank Ravinder for all of her kindness, suggestions, and help. Now, that must make you feel pretty good, doesn't it, Ralph? That is a, that's a fabulous story. Yeah, I remember talking to her in the beginning and, you know, trying to help her think through the types of titles that, that she should try. And I have a few people like that. And, yeah, it's really cool when they do call back and say, hey... It's working. 
My life's right. changing. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to apply by sending your comments to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank you all for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Supernormal, Science, Yoga, and the Evidence for Extraordinary Psychic Abilities with Dr. Dean Radin. What exactly does it mean to be supernormal, and can activities such as meditation, yoga, and so forth actually release extraordinary powers such as telepathy, clairvoyance, and precognition? Is it really possible to influence objects with our minds and have science validate this feat? How about future vision? Do some people actually possess the power of future sight? There are plenty of scientists out there who would quickly respond to questions of this nature by attacking the idea as unmitigated rubbish championed by a few fools. However, there are also a handful of accomplished scientists who have done the necessary research to be able to defend these possibilities with hard data. Enter today's guest. Dean Radin, Ph.D., has been studying advanced capacities of human consciousness for over 30 years. He is presently chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and adjunct faculty in the Department of Psychology at Sonoma State University. He previously worked at Princeton University, University of Edinburgh in Scotland, AT&T Bell Labs, and SRI International, where he participated in a program investigating psychic phenomena for the U.S. government, a program called Stargate. He is author or co-author of over 200 technical and popular articles, two dozen book chapters, and three books, including the award-winning The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, and his newest, Supernormal. Now, Dr. Raiden has been with us before, so let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Dean Raiden. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Indeed, our pleasure, sir. Listen, before we begin, congratulations. Excuse me. Well, a bit of a cough there. On winning the 2015 Charles Honorton Integrative Contribution Award. Tell us. Oh. Tell us about the award and how it feels to receive that, sir. Well, it's always gratifying to be recognized by your colleagues. Uh, the, this award is in memory of uh, our colleague who, who died about 10 years ago, uh, actually more than that now, uh, whose, whose interest and special expertise was uh, taking the uh, somewhat uh, frontier or fringe area of parapsychology and uh, and integrating it into mainstream science. So the award is named after him and it's given to people who uh, usually by writing articles that are then published in mainstream journals, which given the nature of the topic is difficult to put it mildly. Uh, but that's mildly. what my interest has been for a long time now to to take what is thought to be fringe and within the scientific world and actually demonstrate that not only is it not fringe, but it's of interest and should be of interest to all scientists. 
and you've done an outstanding job, and we're going to talk about some of that today. You, you've you been a very busy man since we last spoke, but many of our listeners may not be familiar with you, so if we may, let's begin by having you tell us something about yourself. What, what were you like as a child, and uh, did you always want to be a scientist, uh, or, you know, did Sometime in your life, did you want to be a basketball player or a football player? I mean, who is Dean Radin? I uh, I was born with uh, an extra Y chromosome, uh, which which manifests into the annoying little kid who keeps asking why about everything. <laughs> and so, uh, did I want to be a scientist? Well, probably, even though I'd, I didn't know what that meant when I was a, a very small child. But I, I do notice that uh, in the first grade, I went to a small private school where the teacher gave an evaluation of each child at the end of the year, and she wrote as part of her evaluation that Dean will be one of our future scientists because she saw something with the, the dean in the first grade who must have simply asked questions about everything all the time. So she saw it way in advance of, of what I imagined as a career, uh, because from age 5 to 25, I was involved primarily with music. I was a classical violinist, and then later in my career, I switched into bluegrass and played both uh, bluegrass fiddle and, uh, and banjo. Wow, that's so, a switch. Classical to bluegrass? Yeah. Well, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, so somewhere in there I must have been hearing country music and bluegrass music, and it got stuck in my head, and I've always enjoyed it a great deal. Yeah. Well, I, I like the juxtaposition between the music itself, which is very happy, especially the banjo, and the words, which are usually incredibly sad. So there was something about the combination of the two which appealed to me. You know, one of my favorite you know, pieces of that kind is called dueling banjos. Have you ever tried that one? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, we're going to have to get you to bring a banjo to the air or, you know, do a recording. We're going to have to we're going to have to play that. That's a side of you. We did. I didn't know anything about. Now, when you said extra Y chromosome, you're spelling Y.W.H.Y. Is that correct? Of course. Yes. <laughs> OK. It's just, you know, it's just kind of that was a. That's a fun piece of humor. All right, before we get into your book, Supernormal, let's talk about your paper on consciousness and the double-slit interference pattern, which, uh, you know, a colleague of mine who is a physicist says, uh, if this one is replicated, it's Nobel candidate. Uh, So a pretty important finding, I think. Let's begin there, because this work demonstrates mind acting on the material universe. Please share with us what you did and what your conclusions were. Well, this is part of actually a a long-term effort within parapsychology, and it's the study of the interaction between mind and matter. So the way it's presented in entertainment and movies is massive effects, massive psychokinetic effects where things are flying around and people are flying and all sorts of stuff. Uh, That, of course, is not what we study. In the laboratory, we study the effect of intention or will or simply focused attention on different kinds of physical systems. And as I said, this has been going on for a very long time, since at least the 1930s. And in fact, if you look 
way back in the literature in the 1500s when Francis Bacon was developing the notion of empiricism, which is at the core of science. Uh, it, it was a challenge to science of the day, which is primarily to read Aristotle, and whatever Aristotle said, that was taken as fact. Literal, yeah. But many things that Aristotle wrote were basically opinions, and many of those opinions were wrong. And so up until around the time of Francis Bacon, uh, the, the idea that you should actually test the world to see what was going on was, was a new idea. And so in one of his original books, Francis Bacon's books, Dr. he actually Reed, mentioned... I, I, sh I should have allowed more time, because this is a question that's take a minute, but I don't want to get kicked out by the computer, so let's... Yeah, we've got a break here. When we come back, let's pick it up right where we are. We're speaking with Dr. Dean Radin about his life, work, and books. To learn more about Dr. Radin, visit his website at Dean Radin. That's D-E-A-N-R-A-D-I-N dot com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dean Radin about his life, work, and newest book, Supernormal. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. Music can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. 
Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. In fact, according to a recent study, you can even determine one's social class by their favorite music. As such, there can be a great deal of self-disclosure in the selection of one's music choices. Okay, we just played Operator by Manhattan Transfer. Why is this one special to you, Dr. Rayton, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Dr. Rayden? I'm not entirely sure how to answer that question. Uh, <laughs> well, that's okay. You that, just go ahead and give us a try. Well, I, I know as, as a musician, uh, a performing musician for many years, I, I came to appreciate high craftsmanship. And so the Manhattan Transfer is uh, an example of a group that was just absolutely precise. And... I also know that I like gospel music. Actually, I like music in any domain. Every form of music provided that it's done well. A lot of what we hear as popular music is okay, and some of it is really exceptional, but a lot of it I'm not really attracted to because it's just not done very well. Uh, so you take the combination of a very well execution combined with gospel, and I just, I just like that. So it's but it's actually, you know, to ask, the for, to ask for just a couple of examples is, is very difficult for me because I, I can give hundreds and hundreds of, of things that I like. Oh, that's all right. But you're also a trained psychologist, so you could give me that kind of a story on a thematic apperception test, you know, a Rorschach. And we both know that that would just be. Nevertheless, this one came out. And so it's the precision you're suggesting that is the reason you like this this piece of music? Well, that's, uh, yes, from a musical point of view. Uh, from a topic point of view, I think it's also interesting. While I'm not a religious person, I think I probably fit into the category of uh, people who are interested in spirituality but not religion. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Jesus part doesn't really resonate with me, but the idea that perhaps there's a way to connect. If you get the right number, uh, that also has a certain appeal to it. All right. You, uh, you've got two more we'll ask you about before this show's over. Let's go back to what we were talking about before the break. Um, you had just explained that uh, I think where you'd left off was, you know, Bacon's day, Aristotle was God. If he said it so, that's how it was. Nobody, nobody really went out to, to verify his statements, and, uh, and that all changed. Do you want to pick it up from there? Right. So the reason I'm going all the way back to the 1500s is because I want to point out that the, well, the study that I did involving an optical double-slit system seems brand new. It actually follows a very long tradition. So I'm, I'm basically standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. Francis Bacon wrote in one of his famous early treaties about something he called the force of imagination. That's what we would today call will or intention. And so he used that as an example of if you wanted to study the force of imagination, how would you do it? In other words, how would you study whether mind interacts with the physical world? And he suggested the tossing of dice. 
So if you toss dice and you have in your mind you'd really like a three to show up or really like a four to show up, if that happened more often than expected by chance, it would provide evidence that your will was being imposed into the world at large. Right. So this is not a new idea. It's been around a long, long time. In fact, all the way back to the beginning of scientific empiricism. So now we'll jump a couple hundred years into the future to this experiment. And the idea of it is based on two outstanding problems in science today, both of which explicitly are talking about mind and matter. So one is called qualia, and the other one is called quanta. The qualia problem is the question of how is it that this uh, pound, three-pound lump of tissue in your head is giving you internal experiences? In other words, how does the brain, what's the relationship between the brain and the mind? In the neurosciences, the assumption is the brain generates the mind, and that's the end of the story. So the brain is damaged or dies, there is no mind anymore. The internal sense of you is gone, and that's, that's the end of the story. There is a lot of evidence that something like that is true. Certainly the methods used in neuroscience suggest that the brain is certainly related in an important way to our internal experience. But that because of evidence from parapsychology uh, suggesting that the mind is not limited to the brain, uh, we have to question this assumption that the brain generates the mind. And that, of course, leads to all kinds of different possibilities. So one kind of, one approach then that you could take in studying the nature of qualia, this internal experience, is through studying quanta. And of course, quanta refers to uh, the quantum measurement problem or to quantum objects. And the puzzle there is that if you observe or measure a quantum object, its properties change, its behavior changes, and leading to the question, how does the elementary physical world know that somebody is measuring it or, or watching it or observing it? So there's something like 12 different interpretations of, of an answer to that question. And one prominent, but in today's probably a minority interpretation, is that there's something peculiar about the nature of consciousness or the mind that is not quite physical in the same sense that we think of the, the ordinary physical world. And it is because it is not physical that it actually can intervene with the physical world in a, in a different way and cause the elementary world to actually behave differently. So the experiment then uses a, a very simple system that is in most physics labs, a, an optical double slit. What that means is you, you take a laser beam and you shine it through two very tiny slits. Each, each of the two slits is about 10 microns across, which is 10 millionths of a meter much smaller than a, a human hair, and they're about 200 microns apart, roughly about the, the size of a hair. You shine the laser beam through those two little slits, and you have a camera on the other side that looks at the pattern of light that's produced when it goes through the slits, and what you see is what's called an interference pattern. It looks like ripply waves. If you cover one of the slits, the ripply waves go away, and now you see a, just a diffraction pattern looks like a, a uniform blob of light. And so that experiment suggests that light behaves like a wave. 
and this for a long time was considered to be simply the way it is, the lightest kind of a wave. The problem is that if you shoot one photon at a time, one particle of light at a time through the two slits, it still produces an interference pattern. So this is what gives rise to the notion that light is both a particle and a wave. It behaves like both, depending on how you look at it. And in particular, if you shoot one photon at a time through a double slit system, and you do not know which of the two slits that the particle goes through, you get a different pattern than if you do know which of the two slits it goes through. So this this is sometimes referred to as a quantum measurement problem, that there's something about the measurement of a, of a quanta, like a photon, that changes its behavior. So I figured let's take advantage of this known observation in the laboratory okay, and see before, whether mine... Before you go on, if we can, Dr. Radin, I want to get one thing in here. Most scientists, most physicists see this issue not as uh, uh, an interaction of consciousness so much as a design problem. Is that correct? I wouldn't. No, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that. Okay, uh, well, the physicists I've spoken to say this is not uh, evidence of consciousness. It, 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 what it is is a matter of how the, the, the design to the study is set up. We know that if we set it up this way, we're going to get this outcome. If we set it up this way, we're going to get that outcome. We're not really sure why it would appear that wave-particle duality is. It can be one or the other, but it doesn't uh, insist that consciousness is participating in it. And that's all I'm trying to get on the table here at this point, because that seems to be what the general consensus of physics is. Right. True or false? But when you... When you then deconstruct that that opinion, what right. you find is that somebody has to make a decision at some point. Someone right. uses free will to decide how they're going to measure the system, and the method of measurement then changes the result. And so, right. if, if if you simply take you trace back from the the moment of measurement to somebody making a decision, then some consciousness, some free will, at some point had to intervene. And it's but quite true it, that in a physics experiment... And indeed, experiment, what you're showing in your paper, and that's the reason I wanted to put this on the table, is what you're showing in your paper is that that standard accepted paradigm, you have evidence now, is false to fact. Well, it, it, at minimum, it provides... Uh, it informs the debate, let's put it that way. Okay, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Please continue with where you were. I just I wanted our audience to realize the importance of what your paper does over all the other double-slit experiments and interpretations that are out there. Right. I should also mention, though, that there have been there are a growing number of conferences for physicists and philosophers who are interested in the foundational interpretation of quantum mechanics. Right. And in those conferences, one of the questions that they ask about is, how important do you think the quantum measurement problem is, and what do you think is the proper solution? Well, people do say this is an extremely important problem, and the important part is that there's no consensus on what the proper interpretation is. So it may be true that if you ask most working quantum physicists what do they think about this, most actually don't think about it at all, because it doesn't... It, it doesn't Make, it's not an important point when you're thinking about the ontological 
uh, foundations of quantum mechanics because the equations work really well. You can do all kinds of interesting things with it without thinking about what it actually means. When you ask the experts, uh, what does this mean? Uh, What does it mean about the nature of reality? There is no consensus. And that's why it's so important to do experiments where you're bringing empirical data to the table because then you have a way of helping to discriminate between which interpretation is more likely to be true. And there are very few experiments that, that are being done in physics or elsewhere that are attempting to do this, because right. partially because it's, they're difficult, uh, but also because up until recently, meaning 10 or 15 years ago, it was not considered a proper thing for physicists to do, to, to look at the foundations of quantum mechanics. Instead, they relied on probability theory and just went on the on their way, right? Right. So, so what you can do then is this: you can say, let's let's say that uh, people like John von Neumann and and uh, Eugene Wigner and uh, John Wheeler, all very prominent names in physics, they all suggested that there's something peculiar about the nature of consciousness that might interact and may be important in in the nature of quantum mechanics. So a way to test that is to set up a double-slit system to use the mind as a detector of what is happening to the photons as they go through the system. It's that simple. Now, when I say that to many physicists, I think what they mean is that you, you set up a telescope and somehow people can look with their eye at what's happening at these two tiny little slits and then see it that way. And that is a way to do it. Uh, but I'm using a more radical approach, which assumes that there's some aspect of the mind which can gain information from a distance. And why do I make that assumption? Because there's over a century's worth of research on clairvoyance that says that's exactly what the mind does. It is able to get information from a distance. So what if you got information about the behavior of photons inside a double slit system? You got that from a distance because these optical systems are very well shielded and you can't see it with your eye. Well, if it is possible for your mind to gain that kind of information about the behavior of photons, then the interference pattern that the camera sees should change, and it should change in a predictable way. So that's the design of the experiment that we've been doing. We ask people to essentially put their mind inside the optical system, see what's happening, and then withdraw their mind and go back and forth in a counterbalanced fashion and see whether the interference pattern is changing accordingly. To make a long story short, we've now done something like 16 or 17 experiments using different optical systems, including one that uh, produces one photon at a time, and we do see evidence that the mind interacts with light in a way that uh, is not exactly predicted as uh, some of the interpretations of quantum mechanics would say, uh, but nevertheless, there is an interaction. So this follows on this long history of looking at mind-matter interaction, but looking at it now, it's actually mind-light interaction or mind-energy interaction, and we see effects there that do help to inform our interpretation of quantum mechanics. And when you then step back and you say, okay, if this is true, that somehow consciousness is interacting with with matter or with energy, then it either raises a dualistic model, that mind and matter are really two fundamentally different things, or that they're a, a kind of monist model, 
which is more satisfying to many people because we're always looking in science to a way to unify things that look that appear to be different. Mind and matter appear to be different, and my guess is that ultimately both are arising out of something that is even more fundamental than mind or matter, like maybe like pure awareness or something of that sort. Uh, that's why mind and matter appear to interact. I, I think of the universe as being intelligent, and, and you know it is intelligence and intelligence and sharing. But, but it, it, it is an incredible piece of work that you've done, and, and you know I want to punctuate that. When I read the paper, I was—I uh, I mean, I was really uh, impressed. Uh, but then I'm not a physicist, uh, so but I happen to you know have the great opportunity of uh, sharing with a number of physicists, uh, you know, things that uh, are in this field, and and they're not so sympathetic always. So when I kick it out to them, I expect them to take it apart, and. Instead, what I got back was, uh, if this is replicated, this is a really significant finding. Now, when I spoke to you about this originally, or we swapped some email, you told me about some replications that were on the table that uh, are are about to be run. Where where are you on that? Well, actually, I'm looking at the system that we used this double-slit system that we're preparing to send off to a laboratory in Berlin, Germany, that uh, wants to do a replication uh, using our equipment. So we're in the process now of figuring out how to ship it, uh, and so they'll, they'll do the replication. But I should say that the data, the, I mean, we have a huge amount of data from these, all of these experiments. The data has been looked at now by two independent physicists who've reanalyzed the results that we got, and they do get the same result. So what we're reporting is not an analytical mistake. Uh, the, the next question is, can the lab in Berlin or maybe other labs that we can get interested in this topic to, to replicate the experiment from scratch using their own equipment? And that's, you know, it, it is, it's sometimes said that uh, if this is true, this revolutionizes everything. And the reason why people don't jump on it is because this is not a trivial experiment to do, for one thing. It's not difficult, but it also is not exactly trivial. Uh, and historically, when you have something that is such a major challenge, it usually takes a long time, years, for anybody else to even cite the paper itself. So I'm not too surprised that there, there hasn't been a giant uh, batch of people jumping on this and trying to replicate it right away. Uh, it is, it's considered so far off the, the usual beaten track that when scientists do their work, generally they need funding to do it, and the funding cycle takes years sometimes. So I'm becoming more optimistic as time goes by and as more papers are published that are citing the, the studies that we've done. By the way, there are now two published reports. There's one in press, and then there's a third one under review. So... In a couple of months, we may have four papers out that are reporting all of these studies we've done. And as we publish more, there'll be more attention on them, and maybe we'll get more people interested in this. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, would it be improper? uh, Well, maybe it is improper, but would you mind seeing that I get copies of these papers? 
Oh, sure. Once they're published, then everything gets in the public domain. So I'll be happy to send you copies. Yeah, please, please. Um, Well, that's another subject. Maybe we'll have that conversation off the air. Listen, last week, while we're talking about double-slit experiments, a study appeared in Nature Physics that suggests time may run backwards. Indeed, it appears that there is a very real possibility, even some would argue probability, that the future affects the present. Now, it's my understanding that the research team behind this study devised a method to carry out Wheeler's, and you mentioned him earlier, John Wheeler's famous thought experiment, um, which really asked the question, when exactly does a photon decide to be a particle or, in the alternative, behave like a wave? So, this, this study, how does it correlate with your work when, when indeed it's suggesting that the future is making the decision about whatever, um, however the photon is going to manifest. And you know what I've done? I've done a terrible. I've asked you this question again when we've got about 30 seconds before we go to break. So when we get back from break, let's take this one up. Let's see if we can unpack it. And please... Consider this, if the future is determining what's happening in the present or the past, does that somehow step forward, advance the idea that consciousness is involved, or does it say there's something other than consciousness that's involved, something that precedes the act of intelligence interfacing with intelligence or consciousness interfacing with matter? That's the real question in my mind. If you would like to know more about Dr. Dean Radin and his work, and you I know you'll want to do this, or his book, Supernormal, you can check it out at Barnes & Noble or Amazon Online, or visit his website, deanradin.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest and answering the question, Was Buddha a supernormal human being? You can check it out by joining the room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Tell your little story and it won't take a long. About a lazy farmer who wouldn't hold his corn. 
That young man was always well He planted his corn in the month of June And by July it was up to his eyes Come September came a big frost And all the young man's corn was lost Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Dean Rayton about his work in the newest book, Supernormal. All right, now that was really foot-tapping music, Dr. Rayton. We just played your second musical choice, The Boy Who Wouldn't Hoe Corn, by Alison Krauss in the Union Station. Tell us, why is this one special to you, sir? Well, as I mentioned before, I, I was in bluegrass bands for about five years, and so... Uh, Allison Krauss and Union Station are right at the top of the kind of bluegrass that I played and enjoyed. And I, I have a strange uh, connection with Allison Krauss, although she doesn't know this, and that is because when I was in graduate school at the University of Illinois, uh, she was probably nine or ten. She was, she was a lot younger than I was and am. Uh, so the connection was that uh, when I was in graduate school, I was in, invited or encouraged to go to the Illinois State uh, Fiddle Championship because I was at, right at the stage of transitioning between classical and bluegrass uh, fiddling. And if you're classically trained to now become a, a bluegrass fiddler, is very easy, I thought. turns out not to be so easy. Because to make a bluegrass sound, you can be technically proficient, but there's a certain kind of sound to it that is difficult to retrain your brain from the precision of classical music to less precise but a different kind of sound for bluegrass. So nevertheless, I was able to play pretty well, 
So I took up the challenge and went to the fiddle competition and was completely squashed by a, a man who won who was something like 75 or 80 years old, who technically wasn't very good, but he clearly was playing bluegrass. He knew how to play bluegrass. So a few years later, Alison Krauss, as I think she was around 12 at that point, she won the Illinois State Fiddler competition, and that's one of the things that launched her career. So mm -hmm. that was the connection, that we, we lived in roughly the same place at about the same time, and uh, while I was a few years ahead of her, we were, were both playing bluegrass fiddle at the time. Cool. So I've, I've uh, tracked her career since then, and I've always uh, found it to be an interesting link, and also she's a fabulous musician. So Now, it, do you play like? both the banjo and the fiddle? Yeah. Because, I mean, what I picked up from that piece was really the banjo. I mean, just... Uh, I guess that was the first instrument that jumped out at me. Just uh, really some great banjo music, but that's certainly yeah. foot tapping music. Uh, you know, there was a study um, a couple of weeks ago that talked about uh, music as a determining factor from your social class, and uh, you know, of course, if you like classical music and ballet, opera, da da da, well, you were of this higher class. But if you happen to like you know, country western or bluegrass, <laughs> you must have come from the backwoods of Arkansas or somewhere in the lost plains of Wyoming. I, I, mm -hmm. I found that study to be rather weak by way of its sample, but just not even at all true by way of my personal experience. What do you think of that? Well, I lived uh, near Washington, D.C. for a number of years, and it's... Uh, there on, on uh, one of the uh, public radio stations, they always had bluegrass. And even going to uh, some of the big music festivals around there, it's very clear that most of the people there are folks who work in Washington, D.C., and yet they're there listening to country music and bluegrass along with everybody else. So I think there's a stereotype that uh, maybe people who listen to Appalachian music must only come from Appalachia, <laughs> which, of course, the stereotype is not true. There are people who like music from all different domains, and I'm just as likely to go to an opera as I am to go to a, a bluegrass concert. Yeah, I, I concur. This was a very weak study. All right, anyhow, moving on. Before the break, um, I suggested that this uh, last week, a uh, new study appeared in Nature's Physics, and, and uh, you and I have exchanged some email on this one, so I know you know about it and are on the page with it. My question, sir, does it collaborate your work, or does it suggest that there's even something, an antecedent, before the act of consciousness participating in the, in the split uh, study? Well, what it shows... And this, of course, we're talking about Wheeler's delayed choice experiment. Right. Uh, what it shows is uh, th that Wheeler proposed this as a Gedanken experiment, a thought experiment. And then a number of decades later, somebody actually tested it with photons, and it shows it to be true, that uh, at least within the they quantum world... They used a helium atom, because they, they, you can't do it with a photon, so they used a helium atom in the experiment. But go on. No, in the new experiment. The original experiment used photons. Oh, right. That's why, that's why what's reported now is not really new. The only new part of it is that they're using atoms rather than photons. But 
it would have been extremely surprising if this new experiment did not work. So the the news advertising, the PR machines, made it sound like for the first time ever we're seeing blah, blah, and that's simply not true. It's maybe the first time people have heard about it, but the literature shows very clearly that it's been known for a long time. That okay, now I thought happening. John Wheeler's experiment was a thought experiment that was impossible to carry out because of the technical nature, the speed of a photon, the equipment that we have available, etc. and so forth. Are you saying that the experiment that Wheeler suggested was actually carried out with photons? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just do a Google on uh, delay choice quantum eraser, and you'll see just one version of a number of different versions that have already been conducted and known to be true. So, so the new, as I said, the new element in this the paper in Nature was that they used atoms rather than photons. But that's all. Right, but that means that the paper, as it appeared in Nature Physics, which essentially says that uh, Wheeler's thought experiment had never been carried out because it was, you know, technically impossible. That statement is false to fact. It uh, it is true that it had not been previously carried out with atoms. That's no true. photons. No, the statement yeah, no, it says it. it no, I'm sure they didn't say it hasn't been carried out with photons because that did. I mean, they that, did indeed. Oh, did well, indeed. then that's false. It's false. It is false. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you see, uh, I wasn't aware that it had actually been carried out with photons. So what you're saying is that this new study, which used an atom, a helium atom, um, oh by these researchers in Australia doesn't doesn't illustrate anything that we didn't know that essentially the future determines the present that's yes. a given already known that is correct yes okay so yes. then i and guess my question to the point would be if that's indeed the instant instance does that tend to instantiate the notion that consciousness is participating in creating whether or determining whether it's a wave or a particle? Or does it suggest that there's an antecedent that precedes consciousness involvement in the entire thing? It actually suggests neither. It, oh, it doesn't. It, this, these kinds of experiments don't involve consciousness at all. What, what they suggest is that the present is, is formed by both the future and the, and the past. You, you, you can define the present as being like sandwiched between two boundary conditions, one of which is past and the other is future. So what happens right now is due both to what happened in the past and what will happen in the future. Uh, all of that is saying, as again has been known for a long time now, that events in the quantum world do not take place in space-time. They take place outside of what we ordinarily think of as space or time. So the experiments that we were talking about before, the double-sit experiment, was looking at uh, what we would call a non-locality in space. I'm over here, and the optical system is over there, and somehow my mind is influencing it even though it's over there. And we've done these experiments now over the Internet where people are as far as 18,000 kilometers away, and we get the same result. 
So that is showing that something about mind is non-local. It extends through space. But if we're dealing with something which is genuinely quantum-like, it has to also extend through time. Because, as I said, these, these effects are not taking place in ordinary space-time. They're outside it. So the delayed choice experiment, like the one published in Nature Physics, is showing that there is a time-like non-local factor in quantum events. If, that is, if it is also true that this, this happens with the mind, then there should be a temporal non-locality associated with the mind, and, in fact, that is the case as well. So we've done the double-sit experiment where people are not trying to influence it in real time, but influence it in the past. Like from the future, influence how it behaved in the past. And that works just as well as trying to influence it at 18,000 kilometers away in space. So we've demonstrated that both forms of non-locality through space and time are both the case in interacting with, with quanta. So that so, I, I may have uh, blown a few minds in the process of just saying what I did, but as I said, that at least within people who know about quantum physics, it's reasonably well understood that not only empirically but theoretically that these these events that are occurring at, at deep levels of the physical world are not in space or time. They're outside it somehow. So Schrodinger's famous cat parable. Mm-hmm. Uh, really is a piece of nonsense. I mean, it, it doesn't, I mean, it's not a matter of is the cat alive or dead, depending on whether we observe it. Um, it's neither. Well, his experiment was proposed as a, a way of demonstrating how absurd the idea would be that consciousness would matter in some way. Because he said, well, obviously the cat can't be both alive and dead. The thing is, though, at the elementary particle level, and in fact, that is true. That yeah, there's, I mean, that's, that's what the idea of a superposition is. The things are both this and that at the same time until they're observed, and then you get one or the other. Interesting. Okay, I spent a good deal of my life studying activities and processes of the mind, you know, why we do what we do and so forth. And one of the large questions in this work today has to do with free will. Functional magnetic resonance imaging studies have conclusively demonstrated that most of our decisions are actually carried out in the non-conscious, and it could take several seconds before the conscious mind becomes aware of that decision. So now this latest twist uh, that you're explaining is not the latest twist, but for all intent and purposes is billed as the question of free will. Now maybe this is the press jumping in there with their interpretation what is your position on free will based on your understanding, then, of mind's interaction with the physical world? Well, that's an excellent question. And what you see in the neurosciences today is a growing uh, feeling that we actually don't have free will. And they use studies, as you mentioned, like the fMRI studies showing that there, you may have a brain activity 10 seconds preceding a decision unconscious activity, in which case, I guess, you think you had free will in your choice, but you really don't. There's a problem with that, and the problem is that if the mind is truly not generated by the brain, or at least some aspects of it, and it is non-local, meaning that it's not actually locked in space-time, 
Mm-hmm. And your internal sense of free will may in fact be exactly how it appears, but your physiology is affected both going into the future and into the past because the mind is not in space-time. So we've, been, we've done many studies now to, to look at that more precisely, and rather than asking people to make decisions, we simply present them with an unpredictable stimulus, like a light flash or a shock or something of that sort. And in these experiments, what we're interested in is, does the body react before something that you can't anticipate? And you have to do this in a way that gets rid of anticipation, because the moment that you can anticipate, your whole body starts gearing up for the event. That's mm-hmm. one of the flaws, I think, in these decision experiments. That you, you really don't make a decision just now. You actually begin to gear up for it long in advance. So in our experiments, there's nothing to gear up for because you have no idea what's about to happen or when. Let's say it's an experiment involving shock. So you're just sitting there and you have a little shock machine that, that puts a, a shock on your fingers. But right. it doesn't, you don't know when it's going to happen and, and you may not know the degree of shock. It could be from nothing to a tickle to a painful shock. And meanwhile, we record your brain waves and record your heart rate and a number of other variables. And what we're interested in seeing is before the event takes place, before in space-time, according to the clock, before that event takes place, what is happening to the body? And the answer is that we see that the body is responding before the event actually unfolds, before the shock occurs. So So the body is anticipating, even though you have no awareness, it's preparing. The body is... From one perspective, the body is anticipating. It's getting ready for a shock that's about to happen. Right. Uh, Of course, begging the question on how, even unconsciously, how do you know that it's about to happen? So one way of interpreting this is that we we have precognitive abilities. Some part of our unconscious usually uh, is is kind of scanning the future and looking for, for threats. So, now, so if you have a shock in your future, that's a threat, and you, you will begin to unconsciously prepare for it. Right. Now, when you're doing this, you're actually, you've also got an EEG going. So you're looking at brainwave activity, right? And brainwave you're not and also any... autonomic. Okay. So, but you're not seeing any cortical evoked potential, no, no P300 waves, nothing that would suggest that the information is being processed even unconsciously. What you do see are slow cortical potentials true you don't see an evoked response because there's nothing to evoke it beforehand but you do see slow cortical potentials otherwise known as readiness waves right right you see slow shifts in dc potential which are linked to the future outcome so let me i, I just want to make sure i have this clear you know so we have a let's think of the mind as outside uh of the the physical being and the mind somehow is plugged into non-space-time potential, it recognizes what's about to happen, sends that information in, the body begins to anticipate and prepare, and we begin to see these... uh, these responses and brainwave activities, and this is all taking place before the event happens. So that suggests that mind is non-local. Have I interpreted that correctly? Yes. 
That is correct. That shows the temporal non-locality of mind. That's, a, yes. that's, that's really interesting. I, I haven't seen this study. Uh, Dr. Radin, where, did, where is it? Where, where would I find it? Well, there are now 36 or 40, something like that, replications. What I'll do is I can send you a meta-analysis that looked at the, the whole batch of studies starting more or less with one I did in the mid-'90s, but has been replicated now by a number of groups around the world What's more important is that if you look at a study that was not designed to look at this kind of effect, but a standard neuroscience study, almost all of which are designed to look at what happens after a stimulus, mm -hmm. so the raw data is there, you take that raw data and you now you look before the stimulus to see if, if there's any difference, and it turns out that there is. So okay, we're dealing here... This meta-analysis you're talking about, this isn't the one that was carried that, that involves Honorton and Ferrari's work, is it? No. This okay. Is using what's called presentiment experiments, okay. which are these physiology-based. I have not seen that. I'd love to see it. Okay, so I'll make a note here to send that to you. Okay. Uh, so there are now several classes of experiments. One is the Honorton-Ferrari one, which is uh, you're, you're talking about um, pressing buttons to anticipate a future thing like a light showing up. So those are called forced choice experiments, but it's using a precognitive target. Right. There are these That's... presentiment experiments, which look at physiological changes. There's a new class of experiments called implicit precognition, where you make a decision, but the decision is actually referring to something that happens in the future. So you can go through a whole different set of classes of experiments, all looking at how the future may influence the present. And basically, they all show the same thing, just as we see in the physics experiments. Now, physics is dealing with elementary particles. We're dealing with humans. But there's a very close correlation between what we see at the elementary particle level as with what we see with human behavior and physiology. One okay, of the reasons why this is not, this is not published in, in the front page of Nature is because we're, we're making a leap of faith here, in a sense, by saying that there's something about deep physics which is important to human experience. And physicists pay very little attention to psychology and vice versa, and so both sides are simply not paying attention to what we, we're doing, which is looking at physics and psychology and physiology. And we see that they're actually all much more closely related to each other than, than most people think. Amen, and I must be guilty of that because that sure that sure got by me. Uh, let, let's turn to your book for a minute. You discuss Daryl Bem's retrocausality findings in your book, suggesting you know precognition, and and that's basically what you're talking about right now. So, do you think this uh, this form of research that you're suggesting actually? Uh, what should I say, fortifies BEM's controversial study? Oh, of course. In fact, in, in uh, Daryl's Daryl BEM's study, he cites these presentiment experiments as the reason why he came up with his version of the experiment in the first place. So his studies are, in a sense, a conceptual replication of all of the prior precognition studies. And it is one of the classes that I was mentioning, and it's called implicit precognition, uh, that if all of the previous 
work is correct, then his studies have to work. And in fact, I believe that they do. So that's the meta-analysis you're talking about, because I'm aware that you were working on that, but you have finished the meta-analytic review. I'll get my my tongue working here properly. Regarding that? Yeah, so there are two things we're talking about. There's a meta-analysis of the presentiment studies, which are the physiology ones. There's a second meta-analysis of 90 90 replications of the BEM approach. So that one... That one hasn't been published yet, but it is pub- it is available. So there, there are two different meta-analyses. Okay. And you will send me about. a link, pretty please, or something? Sure. Okay, sure. great. I love your work. I mean, you know, it's that simple. And you're, and you're always pushing the boundary in a new area. So somebody could almost just uh, follow you and leave it at that. And you know what? Uh, we've got a hard break here, and I'm past time on it. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook or drop me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. If you haven't yet read Mind Programming, you're in for a real awakening. Like the red pill, ignore the book at your own peril. Here's what author Angelina Hart had to say about the book. Mind Programming is a brilliant expose on how we've become unconsciously enslaved to that which we haven't understood. Eldon Taylor exposes and explodes the old world view of fear and lack that has generated direct and indirect manipulation of our minds without our awareness or permission. With well-earned insight, he offers proven pathways of self-empowerment that entrain our consciousness towards the model of unity and abundance that negates the survival paradigm. In a period when fear has reached a frenzied pitch, Taylor shines a brilliant spotlight to dispel the darkness. Get your copy today at fine bookstores everywhere or online from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Books A Million. Hi. I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by... Joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show.
welcome back. We've been chatting with Dr. Dean Rayton about his work and books. In this half hour, we will take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook. So I invite you to join me there today. All right, Dr. Rayton, we've just played your third musical choice, Baby Blue by Bandfinger. What's up with this one? Right, from uh, actually Badfinger. Uh, is this, it... is, this is because as a choice for uh, Breaking Bad, which is the, this, um, the, the series which was very dark in many ways, but just acted brilliantly, uh, I thought this as a musical choice was absolutely perfect. It fit in so well with the, the character and the, the, the denouement of the entire story arc that it was just perfect. So I, I like it. There's also a poignant aspect to, to this band. The band was more or less contemporary with the Beatles. Uh, two of the members of that band ultimately committed suicide because they didn't think that they, their band was being successful. So, of course, they, they don't know, but many, many years later, meaning now, uh, this song became extremely popular, and people rediscovered Badfinger as, as a band uh, because of its use in this TV show. So the poignancy is, is like a double one, that the character in the, in the program, Breaking Bad, is, is a, a tragic character, and the music, while it's a perfect choice of music, also has a tragedy built into the band itself. So I just thought that... It's an interesting story. I've never, I've never seen that. It's a, it's a television series, Breaking yes. Bad. Hmm. Yes, it is. is absolutely exceptional. It, it's not exactly easy to watch, but in terms of the acting, in terms of the story arc, and the rest of it, it's it really an exceptional series. I'll have to take a look at it. I'll take your word on that. I don't watch a lot of television. I'm too busy trying to keep up with guys like you and some of the work that you do. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, listen. In your book. Supernormal. You suggest, or at least I'm going to, I'm going to imply that you suggest that if one studies yoga, studies meditation, you know, has regular spiritual practice, that they are more likely to manifest supernormal powers. Is that true or false? That is true. What then do you see? I mean. What is a supernormal power? Define that for our audience. Well, first of all, I make a distinction between supernatural and supernormal. Mm -hmm. Supernatural has the connotation of the divine, as though the ability is not coming from you, but coming from outside of you, from from God or some Mm -hmm. spiritual source. Supernormal is a word that uh, connotes uh, ordinary, normal, except more so. So it's not coming from outside and the divine, but from an inherent capacity that we all have. So the the title of that book is then suggesting that at least within this one tradition of yoga and meditation, actually many traditions with, with that as a general term, that all of them eventually lead to uh, various kinds of abilities that we might think of as supernormal, and in particular psychic and mystical experience. Okay. At least that's the claim. Right. So now, if I follow the book correctly, you also suggest that this sort of training has a high correlation 
to science. Can you explain that? Well, that's the the point of the book is to say, here we have uh, traditions, and I, I chose Patanjali's Yoga Sutras as an example that I, I spend much time on, because here we have a tradition. It, it's uh, the first written form of yoga, uh, which was written about 2,000 years ago. And at that time, it was reporting on an oral tradition, which goes back thousands of years before that. So it's a, a written account of an oral tradition, which goes back, we don't know how, how far back, thousands and thousands of years. Part of that tradition was, and as written in the Yoga Sutras, that if you do this practice long enough, namely meditation and yoga, you will start encountering various kinds of abilities that today we would call psychic. And some of them are super psychic. So that's, a, that's legend. So now you can say, well, let's, let's see what science has to say about these legends. Well, science has studied only a very small portion of that lore because only a little bit of it uh, lends itself to being studied in the laboratory under controlled conditions. But if we find that any of that lore turns out to be supportable by scientific experiments, it means that when Patanjali was writing this oral history 2,000 years ago, that he wasn't making it up. In other words, he, he wasn't writing fairy tales. He was reporting it as best as they understood it thousands of years ago. So that's the approach that I take in the book, where I go through the various kinds of yogic superpowers that are supposedly claimed, uh, and say, well, what have we studied? Uh, which of these do we think has uh, merit? Which ones have evidence? Which ones don't we know yet? And the bottom line is that I think I make a case that Patanjali was not spinning fairy tales, that the, at least for the four or five kinds of phenomena that he talks about, we do have pretty good evidence now from a very strict scientific perspective that what we might call elementary psychic phenomena are uh, developed as a result of dedicated meditation practice. And we've recently okay. done a survey among 2,000 meditators asking them, uh, thinking of before they started meditating to afterwards, do they in fact remember that they have encountered more synchronicities, more instances of telepathy or precognition or other elementary psychic effects? And 75% of them said yes. So we have survey data, we have laboratory data converging towards saying these ancient traditions of ways of not designed to develop psychic ability, because that's not what yoga is all about. But if you do that practice, will you bump into these phenomena? The answer seems to be yes. So the reason I wrote the book is because we now have tens of millions of people around the world who are doing yoga, we're thinking of it primarily as a form of, of spiritual aerobics or, or postural yoga, who may not realize that in the, in the process of doing that practice, especially the meditative part, they're very likely to start encountering things which they may not have thought about before, namely increased number of synchronicities and occasionally precognitive dreams and sometimes telepathic experiences. All right. I'm sure you're aware of Psychops' treatment of your book, Supernormal. 
and some of the you know the way they attacked uh, surveys and uh, at least a particular meta-analysis and so on. But when you see these attacks, I'm going to I'm going to phrase this differently. When I see these attacks, the first thing that I recognize is that. We have an opinion, and now we're going to justify to our base that opinion, and that opinion must discredit anything that challenges. That's the first thing I see when I read these. How do you respond to them? Well, actually, I I feel a certain degree of, of pity for very strong skeptics of the of the psychop, although they no longer use that name. For somebody who is taking a position that all of these claims are completely false, 100% false, that is an extremely difficult position to be in, because that means you cannot allow any evidence at all. And just looking from the history of science perspective, when you have an empirical database, and the empirical database just keeps getting stronger and stronger over time, and when you find that skeptics who paid attention to the literature not only can successfully replicate the effects, but they agree that they don't see any any show-stopping flaws in the in the data, that puts them into a very untenable position, a very uncomfortable position, where eventually people who hold that opinion are gonna are gonna go away, because they're gonna become the crazy ones who are sustaining right. an illusory belief. Right. So. That's why I said that I feel kind of sorry for people who who insist that there cannot be any evidence because the evidence is there. Well, see, and I think when I see them and they are categorical, it's a 100% this, that, and the other. As you put it, you know that they have an agenda and what, and it is their agenda that they're defending as opposed to really being you know, scientists and critically evaluating whatever the work is. All right, listen, let's personalize this some. In Chapter 5, which you title Unbelievable, you share a a story of Yogananda, uh, which he tells in the autobiography of a yogi. You go on to weave this story into your experience at Bell Labs, and I found this part of your personal journey most interesting. So how about sharing it with our audience? You're going to have to remind me about that little piece because I, I don't actually remember it in detail. Well, it's a piece where you know you're you're reading um, the autobiography of a yogi, and right. uh, he's talking about various manifestations of the cities, and you're working at Bell Labs at the time, and uh, and it inspires you to do some work at Bell Labs. I see. Does that? Yeah. So, so what Yogananda was talking about, and what you often find in stories of the mystic masters of the East, are macroscopic psychokinetic effects. And so, what one of the stories he's telling there is uh, that a, uh, a guru is able to manifest diamonds; just wants to have a diamond, and poof, there it is. Right. So, any Western-trained scientist looks at a story like that and says, "You got to be kidding." You know, we we never see any evidence of that type. So obviously, these are simply stories; they're fairy tales. And most scientists would then just drop the issue, saying, "See, I, I don't even need to look at this anymore." I have a, a somewhat different approach by saying, "Well, maybe we can't m- make a diamond appear, 
but it maybe it suggests that there is some form of mind-matter interaction. So I started to do experiments in mind-matter interaction, but it, again, at the quantum scale at that point, uh, partially because the instrumentation is available to, to do it, and also because then it's in the realm of physics, and we're not, not dealing with uh, the mystic masters anymore. And also that, that you can't find mystic masters very easily, certainly not at Bell Labs. So I had to work with myself and my colleagues as the subjects. And we're not mystic masters. We're not even mystic apprentices. We're just people. But it does allow us to test whether our intention can influence, in this case, it was the radioactive decay rates of radioactive particles. So we started doing those experiments, and to my surprise, we were able to replicate studies that had been previously published. And they were talking here about scientific studies that had been published. And one of the things that happened as a result of doing those experiments, besides eventually getting the uh, ability to use the imprimatur of Bell Labs on our, our publications, was that one of the people that I worked with, unbeknownst to me, was a lay minister. And I asked him to, to be a subject in the experiment. And he wasn't interested in doing that because in, in his perspective was that this was the work of the devil. And so I, I was a little bit puzzled, like, what, what exactly is the work of the devil? I'm doing an experiment here. Well, in religious traditions, some of them anyway, uh, this, these kinds of phenomena, and talking here about psychic phenomena, right. are not supposed to be something that we inherently have. You, you might be lucky and have a divine gift, and if you're really lucky, you'll end up being a saint, but otherwise, no human is supposed to be able to produce these effects. Therefore, it's demonic, and therefore, these experiments are demonic. So I was, I was actually shocked at the time, because this is a highly technically trained guy. I had worked with him on projects before, and he never spoke to me again. So that, it again, shows to hold a very strong belief about the way that the world is supposed to be, as opposed to taking an empirical approach and asking the world, what are you, as opposed to making up my an idea about what it's supposed to be. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why there's so much tension about, about this domain of science, that we're pushing hard against what people's beliefs are as compared to what the world actually is like. Yeah, it, 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 to me, I find it very interesting that there are still fundamentalists today who find the entire idea of psychology to be um, against their religion. You know, the notion that you might mess with somebody's mind, well, you know, that's definitely of the devil. So, yeah. but <clears throat> let's, let's then talk now about some of the evidence that, you know, you found... Uh, for supernormal abilities, there's some very interesting findings in your book regarding uh, telepathy in particularly. Um, please share some of the evidence for telepathy with us. So telepathy is considered one of the cities. That's a Sanskrit term. It's spelled S-I-D-D-H-I. -D -D mm -hmm. A city is the, the special ability or the power that is developed as a result of gaining a state called samadhi, which is a kind of mystical union state, which happens if you meditate long enough. Right. So telepathy is described as if you 
if you gain this union, mystical union state and you happen to keep a friend in mind at, at the same time that you're in this samadhi state, you basically have access to everything there is to know about that other person. You become that other person. And in so doing, you gain access to their thoughts. So this is essentially a yogic prescription for how to, how to develop telepathy. This is not somebody that everybody can do at will, uh, but nevertheless, uh, most people experience it spontaneously, and if you meditate long enough, you have more episodes of it. So when we go to the laboratory, we're saying uh, it'd be nice if we could work with yogis who have this training, but let's just use college sophomores because they're available and they're easy to get. And you can create an experiment where under very tightly controlled conditions, you want to see if one person who will call the sender can mentally send an image of a, of a picture or of a video clip to a person at a distance uh, who will call the receiver and simply see if the receiver can accurately describe uh, their impressions and does it match the target. So we use the terms like hit and miss. If you get a hit, then it means the receiver correctly described what the sender sent. If they missed, then they didn't get it correct. So in experiments where there are four possible targets, one of which is the real one, and then three decoys, you would expect by chance that that experiment would result in 25% hit rates. That would be chance. But what you get in these experiments is 32%. And these are unselected people in the experiment. As I said, mostly college sophomores. Right. And that means that in the broad population at large, whether people know it or not, they have the capacity to connect to another person's mind and gain a little bit of extra information that is not accounted for by any known loophole. That is then consistent with the notion that we're telepathically connected to each other all the time. Some people are much, much better at this. And if you do the same kind of experiment with people who report previous telepathic experiences or their uh, creative people, artists or musicians who spend a lot of time doing creative activity, they tend to get more like 50% correct, where 25% would be chance. So these are all extremely statistically significant. They're not big in terms of, of magnitude, but in terms of the statistics, there is no doubt that these effects are real. So we go back to Patanjali, he's writing about telepathy, and we can then say, you look at the scientific data, it suggests that telepathy is real, in which case that particular city that potentially talks about is also real, and we can put a check mark next to that that particular yogic power as being likely to be true. It's a great book, Supernormal. I have one more question for you, and we're running short on time. I actually have many, many more questions, but I've got to, you know, I've got to ask you this one. In your book, you talk about. Uh, Transcendental Meditation, and Mar- uh, Maharashi, and he states in response to what would, what would it take for yogi flyers to fly today, he states, and I'm quoting from your book, quote, coherence in the world of consciousness, close quote. Now, we live at a time in a world when, you know, we're really divided wor- from a world standpoint. And when I look at history, it, you know, that is how we have been. My question, sir, is do you think there was ever a time that coherence in the world of consciousness has existed on this planet with this species? 
I think it would be more likely in the far past when there were far fewer people. <laughs> Maybe uh, too. <laughs> the, more, the more people we have, especially as we start to approach 9 billion people in a couple of years, uh, it will, that is going to create more chaos. But on the other hand, our interconnectedness through the Internet and other methods is also increasing. So we may find ourselves actually somewhere around 9 billion with new technology much more tightly connected than we've been up to this point. And and then maybe we'll see whether the the, the TM prediction was correct. You know, maybe we get to a point where suddenly we do have moments of very high coherence. Uh, And we are beginning to see such moments, by the way, when you have billions of people paying attention to the opening ceremony of the Olympics, for example. That's a large chunk of a huge number of people on the planet all paying attention in the same way to the same event at the same time. And that's new in human history. Yeah, so definitely I, I think I would predict. I'm sorry, Dr. Radin, but we're out of time. The book is Supernormal. The website is Dean Radin. That's Radin, R-A-D-I-N dot com. Don't miss the book, Supernormal, DeanRadin.com. I want to thank you, Dr. Radin, for your willingness to share with us your work. And I'm sorry, but we have indeed run out of time. And I want to thank our, all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show. And will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.